welcome to Lunch and Unlearn. In today's episode, Jess and I tackle the top seven things that our listeners have asked about this month, mainly focused around how to best respond when others challenge the existence of oppression. To wrap up our time together, we will share with you our featured follow, some resources to help you get more comfortable with language and information pertaining to uncovering bias and responding to implicit bias. And finally, we will leave you with some personal reflections to consider in the week ahead. Let's grab some lunch and get ready to unlearn together. In the midst of a pandemic, a black revolution and a white awakening are happening. Diversity, equity, and inclusion educators, Brianna Clover and Dr. Jessica Petty create brave spaces for candid conversations on race equity, focusing specifically on its intersection with ableism, sexism, sexual orientation, and gender identity, all from the unique perspective of a black woman and a white woman. I'm Brianna Clover. And I'm Dr. Jessica Petty. Jess and I want to spend some time in this episode addressing the top seven questions we've gotten from our listeners this month. Consistently, we're hearing, I want to speak up more, but I don't always know how to respond to dismissive or challenging statements or questions, or I freeze up and then I just don't say anything. And we figured the best way for us to address some of the common topics that happen awkwardly in family discussions, on Zoom work meeting calls, or even a FaceTime call with a friend is to first investigate and explain their origin and then offer possible responses to advance the conversation. And before we get started, I want to remind our listeners of something that Jess and I have to often remind ourselves on a regular basis, and that is this work is a journey, not a destination. We are seed planters, but it's not always up to us to make sure that everyone waters and tends to the seeds so they flourish. Oppression in America, especially racism, sexism, classism, ableism, and discrimination of the LGBTQIA community, is in the DNA of our country, and it's likely we will never completely eradicate it, at least not in our lifetime. And while there are days that that reality feels like a heavy weight on my shoulders personally, it more often helps me move from a place of despair to a place of hope. Just a few more seeds. In order to move from a state of despair and overwhelm, I keep this reminder in the back of my mind on a regular basis. I have to let go of changing the other person. My objective for calling people in and not out is driven by my own need for authenticity and integrity. I love how you describe your daily work. Just planting a few more seeds. (laughs) Okay, before we address those seven listener questions, I'd like to give some background information that will help us understand the origin of some of these statements and questions. Yes, I like to call it the invisibility of privilege. In academia, this is described as the sanctioned not knowing or willful ignorance. And basically, this refers to the dynamics that allow dominant groups to remain completely uninformed, despite the overwhelming evidence of injustice in society. So when we use the term willful ignorance, we are describing the experience of non-dominant groups who have tried to get dominant groups to acknowledge and see their experience, but the dominant group has collectively resisted the information and its validity. And as a Black woman who is still tempted to placate white feelings in matters of race, it's a constant struggle and frustration that in matters of race equity, it still seems to be trending in white consciousness. And what I mean by that is white people have the privilege to disengage from this work. It isn't seen as directly impacting them. And we already see this in the general public, and I see this in my personal news feed. 
it seems that people have moved on from George Floyd's lynching. I hear things like, when will the protest stop? And rarely do I see others in my social sphere outraged at the lack of justice for Breonna Taylor still to this day, for instance. And I think beyond many companies' initial public statements, the public dialogue is waning. And I have to imagine that for many groups who are often left in the margins, this awakening feels similar to what I felt. This shock at what is going on in this country is just further validation, in my opinion, of how clueless the dominant group has been, and in many cases still is. One of the reasons why this work is so important to me is I want to capitalize on so many leaders awakening and help guide organizations towards making true, authentic, sustainable change. And it's not going to be easy. And some days I wonder if they have what it takes. But overall, I am hopeful and I feel a tremendous responsibility to not let this become another trend that is quickly forgotten. So when we talk about willful ignorance, we see this expressed in several forms. One is demanding more data. Um, That's a common pushback. And you'll hear statements like, where did you hear that? What's your source? I've never heard that before. Another one I often hear is the exception. For instance, look at Oprah. She's one of the richest people in the world. She didn't let race hold her back. She just worked hard. Or we elected a black president. How much more proof do you need that racism is behind us? Another psychological response that I've resorted to, unfortunately, is defensiveness. We all want to be good people and having our privilege and even worse, our hand in oppression called out, I know has put me on my heels more times than I'd like to admit. These statements commonly sound like, I'm not an ableist. My grandmother uses a walker. Or you'll hear the use of personal anecdotes or experiences to disprove their role in injustice, such as my college sweet mate was black and I never treated him any different from the other guys. Racism doesn't run in my veins. Hmm. And as you pointed out in the first example, data can often be questioned. And there is also the tactic to disagree with experts, even when the person has little knowledge of the topic, but somehow they feel qualified to argue back based solely on their opinion or their own personal experience. Brie, for me as an educator and someone who values learning, interactions with that type of person is honestly my biggest challenge. Mm. But like you said, we plant seeds when we can, but we don't take responsibility for watering every single one. That's right. Okay, now that we've laid some groundwork, let's address those seven situations that have our listeners stumped and or searching for more understanding. And of the seven, three specifically address race. So Bree, I'd like to tee each one up to you and then have you share more about the issue and then perhaps give us some potential responses. Does that sound good? Perfect. All right. First one. I don't think we should be supporting movements like Black Lives Matter because, frankly, all lives matter. I hear this one a lot. We have so many resources at our disposal. And so in the spirit of giving a clear and simple answer, I went to the Black Lives Matter website. And I want to read a few excerpts from a letter written by the Global Network co-founder, executive director and board president of Black Lives Matter, Patrice Cullors. And she says, as human beings, we usually fight for the things that move us out of complacency. We fight for clarity and truth telling. We fight for a world that we want our children to live in, a world we want our communities to thrive in. I've always fought for my family, my community, for poor black people. That's why when Trayvon Martin was murdered and in 2013, when George Zimmerman was acquitted, my body and spirit was moved into action. 
Alicia, Opal, and I created hashtag Black Lives Matter as an online community to help combat anti-Black racism across the globe. We firmly believed our movement, which would later become an organization, needed to be con- a contributing voice for Black folks and our allies to support changing the material conditions for Black people. Because we deserve the healing and the transformation, and most importantly, we deserve to be free. Hmm, that's powerful. Yeah. So thinking about how we respond to that, that initial statement around all lives matter, can you give us some potential responses to that statement? Yeah, my response as a black woman is that is all we want. We want all lives to matter. But the reality in America is not all lives matter. There is irrefutable evidence that white lives as a whole matter more than black lives in America and in other parts of the globe. And as I stated earlier, the Black Lives Matter movement, an eventual organization, was created to be a voice for black folks and their allies to support changing this reality for black people. So this response of all lives matter is, in my opinion, problematic, and it misses the entire point. It is dismissive to the experiences of Black people in America, and frankly, it needs to stop. But if you are from the white community and you're struggling with knowing how to respond, perhaps a response would sound like, Black Lives Matter is not saying that police officers' lives don't matter or that only Black Lives Matter. It is a call for community engagement and acknowledgement of the Black experience. The Black community is not asking for that at the expense of others. They just want their Black children to be safe, for instance, when they walk to school or go to the corner store. It's hmm. a great explanation. Hmm. Here's another one we, we've heard from several of our listeners. In conversations with friends and family, this comes up for them quite often. And it's the statement that talking about race only divides us further. Yeah. I've heard that often too. And essentially this question denies the significance of race and the advantages of being white and it further perpetuates racism. Put simply, there is countless evidence that shows we are already divided by race on every measure of demographics and outcomes in our society. A more appropriate and accurate statement would be that it is in fact the refusal to take an honest account of the power of race as a social construct that keeps us divided. That's great too. All right, here's your third one. Okay. And I know I often hear this. I was raised to be colorblind. I don't see race. Mm. Another common one. And I would say that this statement is problematic for two reasons. One, It is not actually possible to be colorblind. We do, in fact, see race, and it does have social meaning and consequences. And two, it trivializes the realities of racism. That that statement erases the personal stories and cultural history of racism. Okay, your turn again, Jess. One of the the responses our our listeners wanted to, to hear from us about is, people just need to work hard and they will get ahead. Ah, the classic myth of meritocracy. (laughs) Just work hard, right? Yeah. So let's examine that a bit. So let's imagine that you live in the United States. The federal minimum wage is currently $7.25 per hour. Mm -hmm. It has been since July of 2009. So at 40 hours per week, and let's just say that you take 
no vacations, you're never sick, and you worked all 52 weeks of the year, that's a whopping $15,080 per year. Yikes. Which happens to be $850 below the federal poverty line for a two-person household. And many people don't know this, but under Section 14C of the Fair Labor Standards Act, employers can actually pay workers with a disability below the federal minimum wage. There's no ADA protection for wages here. Hmm. And I would argue that minimum wage work is among the hardest work. It's often physical and grueling and low status work. These are your fast food, retail, agriculture, factory, manufacturing workers. To survive, these people often have two, sometimes three jobs just to try to you know, make their mortgage payments or rent, put food on the table. So when I hear this, my initial thought is, is it actually hard work that allows individuals to attain and maintain financial security? Because in the United States over the last 30 years the incomes of the bottom 50% have grown 0%. Mm. And Brie, brace yourself. The income of the top 1% has grown 300%. Jess, that is disturbing. (laughs) That's all I got to say about that. So how would you respond when someone just says work harder? I generally respond by... First, acknowledging the importance of a good work ethic. And I try to validate their own hard work if I'm familiar with their story and background. And then I generally try to reflect on the fact that I too try to work hard and I try to teach my children the same values. But I also recognize that as a white cisgender heterosexual female raising my family in a middle class suburban area, it means that my children will go to college leave with zero debt, have the benefit of our networks to help them gain employment afterwards. The entire time they will have health insurance, they will have parental support, they will have physical and financial security. So for them, and I don't want to say they don't work hard, but for them, working hard means studying for exams, maybe going to the gym to work out sometimes, and hopefully remembering to do their own laundry. (laughs) No, but that's good. That's really good perspective. Okay, Jess, so here's another one. Immigrants are stealing our jobs. Yeah, so this one is, it's complicated, right? And it's always to me such an interesting thing because, I mean, United States of America is built on this idea of, you know, serving Mm -hmm. immigrants, but definitely we'll address that one as well. When I think about this, I think to myself, well, if stealing a job is defined as doing jobs that those who are locally born refuse to do, then I guess I could understand the sentiment. But that doesn't really seem to be the case. So often union workers have collectively bargained against doing certain jobs due to the unsafe conditions. It's generally dangerous and grueling work. And so when immigrants are hired to do these jobs, they're hired by companies who ultimately benefit from this cheap and exploited labor. And if the immigrant workers are undocumented, their voice uh, and their ability to complain about unsafe conditions, you know, low pay or demanding treatment is virtually silenced. And again, all of this is to the advantage of the employer. So the companies who are exploiting immigrant labor, to me, are the ones we should be concerned about, not those being exploited. 
This statement about immigrants stealing jobs shifts the blame from the powerful to the vulnerable. And that's honestly how I generally respond to that statement. Hmm. Okay, Jess, the next one is a subject near and dear to us. Education is the key to getting ahead. So Brie, as we shared in our women's equality episode, women have been graduating from college at higher rates than men for decades, but diplomas don't translate to dollars. The pay gap actually increases for women at higher education levels. And if we look at elementary education, for instance, the funding of school districts is directly tied to tax revenue, which means poor communities have fewer dollars to invest in their children, while wealthy communities consistently fund schools and programs. So I would say that education as it exists today is very often a predictable and efficient way to keep reproducing the same life opportunities and actually reinforces societal hierarchies. Mm. So while I do believe in the power of education, I also recognize that in our current society, education is not created equal. And until we invest in every child with the same levels of commitment as we see in our wealthy communities, education will not be a key to getting ahead for all children and young adults. Yeah. All right. So Brie, we've reached number seven, and it is one that I'm not asked about often. So I'd love to hear your take on this. So the statement is around sports, and it's simply that sports and sports scholarships offer minorities a way out. So the first question I think we need to ask ourselves is, why do we see sports as a way out of poverty for young men of color, but not other fields such as law, medicine, or teaching? And the other question I would ask in response to this statement is, how likely really of a possibility is that in reality? The odds seem pretty small to me. And even if a person of color is the exception and gets on these teams, they often suffer from lifelong debilitating injuries. And oftentimes their run is limited to, you know, a few years. And finally, I think it's important for us to notice how the physical bodies of men of color, especially, are seen as potentially valuable and thus worthy of scholarship support, in this case for our entertainment, but not their minds. And when we look at who are actually the people getting rich from sports? It's not the players, it's the owners. And I want to share a few stats here that I that I looked up. In 2016, 28 of 30 U.S. men's professional basketball team owners were white. 31 of 32 men's pro football team owners were white. 32 of 33 men's pro baseball team owners were white. And of the 95 people who owned these teams, four of them were white women. And that source is from the New York Times 2016. So I think when we look at this, it's really just the combination of why why are the physical bodies of men of color seen valuable for our entertainment? And the majority of the money is going to the owners who are a majority white. I think both of those in combination is a key signifier of class position. The lower your class status, the more your body is seen as exploitable. So, Jess, this was fun. (laughs) And I want to share with our listeners, for those listening today, if there are other questions that you come across that you want us to address, shoot us an email at hello at lunchandunlearn.com. Or you can send us a DM on our social media channels, and we would love to address some additional questions in future episodes. 
This was a great fun, Brie. And thank you to all of our listeners for giving us more to think about and more to unlearn. Brie, thank you for sharing this brave space with me today. We are learning so much from others that in each episode, we want to feature a thought leader or a resource that is impactful to us. For this episode, we actually have two resources we want to share with you. One is a video from the New York Times, and it is called Check Our Bias to Wreck Our Bias. And this short video addresses signs of implicit bias that lurk within our inboxes, social networks, and the patterns of our daily lives, and provides some guidance for us to look at our own data to help us change our ways. And another resource we will share with you today is a New York Times article titled, How to React to Biased Comments at Work. We will include both links in our podcast notes. After listening to this episode, whether on your own or with your work teams, family, or friends, we'd like to leave you with a challenge. Find your person. Find someone who has a similar desire to unlearn and practice together. Reflect with each other. Support each other in your brave conversations. As we embark on this journey of unlearning, we are so thankful that you're here. We are excited to continue unpacking this conversation around race equity and intersectionality together. Stay connected with us. Visit our website at lunchandunlearn.com and subscribe to our newsletter. You can also follow us on Instagram at lunchandunlearn and Facebook at lunchandunlearn. We hope you'll grab lunch with us again and join us for more brave conversations next time.